welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, and I'm a curator with the National Trust with a portfolio of houses in Herefordshire and Worcestershire. And the daily life of a curator is looking after things as diverse as library ladders and portraits. These places are knowledgeable witnesses, if you like, to things that have been seen and heard by them. And in this group of podcasts, we'll be delving into the stories, plays, books and characters that make each of these places so special. So join me on this journey and immerse yourself in the wonders of the National Trust. This week I'm in Devon, walking through an expansive garden set amongst romantic woodland and rolling hills with a spectacular view down the Dart estuary. And the Dart seems to be rather a hard and sharp word for what is really a very pretty, meandering course of this water the sun coming up over a landscape that is more like a sort of pillows and cushions, these soft, rounded forms. I'm headed towards the beloved holiday home of the best-selling novelist of all time, Agatha Christie, whose wealth of detective stories featuring characters such as Miss Marple and Poirot have sold up to four billion copies. Greenway, now in the care of the National Trust, was Christie's peaceful family retreat. Christie's the undisputed queen of the whodunit formula. Not everyone's a fan, but whether you love the detective fiction genre or hate it, she's undoubtedly a national treasure. Over the years, Christie's work has taken many forms. Her books may line your shelves, you may have seen a TV version of one of her stories, or even have been lucky enough to catch one of her West End plays. Or you may never have heard of her, in which case I hope you'll enjoy getting to know her over the course of this podcast as we explore Greenway, her holiday home, a place that nourished her mind, even influenced her writings. I'm meeting with the National Trust Visitor Experience and Marketing Manager here at Greenway, Belinda Smith, who can get us started. Hello, James. Nice to meet you. Welcome to Greenway. I couldn't be more thrilled to be here. What a dream of a place. It is. It's the most beautiful stucco classical villa, really, on a high vantage point looking over the Dart estuary with a sort of colonnaded front and crisp, austere classical details. A sort of wedding cake of a building and really quite substantial. One, two, three storeys with a little portico and gravel coming up to the front door. It's a little bit of heaven here. I mean, what drew Agatha Christie here? Being born in Torquay and sort of spending her very formative years here, she had a great fondness for the area. And when she was down here, then one day she heard about Greenway being for sale and happened to, to sort of see it from the river as well and declared it, as we know, the loveliest place in the world. And it's a stunning property. And what sort of stage was she at in her writing career when she first came to Greenway? I think she was at the stage, she was very prolific and she had plays. She was producing the goods at that time, she really was. But also needed a place where she could revert to being Mrs Mallowan, you know, the wife of Max Mallowan, the archaeologist, where she could be a mother and a grandmother. So it wasn't a retreat where she wrote, 
It was a place where she could reacquaint herself with real life. I think so. It was very much, first and foremost, a place where she retreated to with the family. But we also know that it was a place where she was always like scribbling and writing. She had her notebooks where she would make notes and adjustments. But this was a place where she used to read and proofread to her family. So she'd sort of gather her family in the drawing room and, and actually read to them the latest plot. They came out on a space surmounted by a small, white, pilastered temple. How did Agatha Christie start writing? Where did it originate from? Well, I think it came out of sibling rivalry, actually, with her sister Madge. Her sister wanted to, to write and to write a book. And I think in the spirit of sibling rivalry, um, Agatha thought, no, no, I'm, I'm going to be the first one to do that. <laughs> this is no different in this day and age, really, is it? And, and that's really how she started, around about the age of 12, from my memory, actually. So very young sort of start. And that was it. Once she was off, and she was up and running. And, and obviously had the plays, the books, you know, the novels, everything. So, yes. And when did she start writing plays? I think that was fairly early on in her career. Obviously the most famous, of course, The Mousetrap. I think it's the longest-running play in the West End, isn't it? And I think anyone who goes to see it isn't allowed to share the ending, I think, from memory as well. So what was the theatre culture like in the 30s? I imagine it was a very glamorous affair. It was truly glamorous. You remember the age of no television, so you have that opulence and that elegance of that era where, you know, people were dressing up to go to the theatre. You didn't go in your jeans and a jumper. It was real glamour. I would have loved to have lived in that glamorous time. I think all of us would, really. And was she a recognisable face in 1930s London? I would imagine so. I mean, if you think about the photographs and the headlines in the newspapers, she wasn't possibly the, the iconic sort of authoress that we know now, but she was well-known and became more famous as time went on. So I'm sure sort of like the Helen Mirren, Judy Dench's sort of like presence would be the equivalent of Agatha Christie at that time. So she was a celebrity in her lifetime. Yes, I don't know if she enjoyed the celebrity status. I mean, she was, you know, at times a very private lady. So I think it was something that she managed very well. Am I right in thinking that she had three plays on at the same time in the West End? Yes, you can't imagine that in this day and age, can you? I mean, at that time, to be such a prolific, popular playwright as well as a published author is, is just unheard of, really, isn't it? So, yes, and I don't think that's actually been matched to this day either. And a woman writing in the 1930s doing that. I mean, that seems extraordinary. She, she was a real pioneer. I think when you're looking at role models for young women, where better to look than, than to somebody like Agatha Christie, a true pioneer of her time. And she's still so famous today. What do you think her legacy will be? There's an awful lot of work that probably will still keep surfacing year on year. There's a whole new audience for Agatha Christie. Foreign audiences, I think there's a young readers. I think you're finding sort of children aged 12 and upwards who are embracing Agatha Christie, which is wonderful. She's having a real renaissance right across the world. And I think, you know, she is adapting and evolving with time to meet sort of the demands of new audiences. And I'm sure she'll go on for, for years and years to come. Long may it last. I would love to have met Agatha Christie. I just think if you think of dinner companions or just somebody to have a cup of tea with, there are a few people that, you know, I personally could think of I would like to turn back the clock and just sit down and, and just get to know. I mean, she sounds an absolutely amazing woman. She really does. Well, I can't tell you my first memories of Greenway because I think I started going there when I was three or four, and that is 70 years ago. 
That's the voice of Matthew Pritchard, Agatha's grandson, who remembers Greenway fondly. My grandparents and my parents were there for the summer holidays, which is where we usually spent six weeks. Then it was, as my grandmother said, the most beautiful place in the world, particularly for my family, because my father was killed right at the end of the war, and we used it as a place for recuperation and trying to get ourselves together again after this tragedy. And even for a small child, that was fairly evident. Uh, but Greenway was real relaxation for her, and it was the focal point of her family life. We sat there in the drawing room, listening. Standing back and frowning at it was a young man wearing dilapidated flannel trousers. I remember that we all sat there, but my grandfather, who used to work quite a bit in the day, got a bit tired, usually halfway through the reading, and he quietly dropped off to sleep. And when it got to the middle and the end of the book, at the end of each part of the reading, she used to say to us, now, come on, you've got to tell me who you think did it, and all this sort of thing. And anyway, we all had a guess, and we were all wrong, except my mother, who was right, and my grandfather, who was right, and who always said it was Lawrence, despite the fact that he hadn't heard half the book. The whole object of Greenway, and I think visitors should remember this, is that what you're supposed to feel when you visit Greenway is that my family just moved out last week. Hearing Matthew's memories of the house, I'm totally intrigued and enchanted, so I'm meeting with Catherine Ward, senior house steward for the National Trust, who's promised to show me around the house and discover whether the place still holds that magic Matthew remembers. Catherine, how do you do? I'm James Crasby. Very nice to meet you. I'm very pleased to meet you. And what a treat to be here. Well, welcome to Greenway. Thank you. Come on in. Thank you very much. Wow. What a very gracious house. Isn't it lovely? So classical house, pretty plaster cornice, stony coloured walls and some rather formidable looking ancestors, I guess, portraits hanging on the wall. Pretty wicker picnic baskets. Agatha met her husband, Max Mallowan, in 1930 on a dig out in the Middle East. She was there visiting some friends. He was there working on the dig. And they fell in love. So did they collect things on their travels that we can see in the house? Yes, so the house, the house is full of original items that all belong to Agatha. Oh, look, and on this a very pretty little Regency Games work table. But on top of it, which is a rather odd combination, are some very pretty embroidered hats that look to me to be Middle Eastern. Just picked up on their travels. What lovely things. These lovely pictures. I'm very taken by this one. Portrait of an elderly woman with a bonnet. Who is that? So, Nursey was Agatha's nurse. I'm afraid we don't know her actual name. She is the woman who taught Agatha how to read and write. She is responsible. Funny, those people that we meet in our lives who are the, give us the tools and the ideas from which great things come. There she is. And underneath the portrait is an intriguing chest. My goodness, look at that. Covered in brass work and sort of armoured and fortified against attack under a paisley shawl. Now, what is that? So it's called a Zanzibar kist, so it comes from the Middle East again. 
Um, so it was inspiration for the mystery of the Spanish chess, which was one of Agatha's short stories. A group of friends are invited to a dinner party. One of them is late turning up, and eventually they discover his body inside the Spanish chest, murdered and squirrelled away. They have to figure out which one of the guests bumped him off. What a very sinister idea. It's not particularly big. I think you'd, you'd have to really push to get a body in there. <laughs> and, wh and where did they get this, this very handsome chest from? As far as we were aware, they picked it up in Baghdad when they were travelling through to one of Max's digs. I very much like the idea of all these things, these objects and places becoming worked into her novels, sort of embroidered into her novels. There are so many things here as part of the collection that you wouldn't necessarily look at in depth, but when you know the history of them, when you know which novels they do appear in, it's not always the objects you'd guess, but she seemed capable of finding inspiration from almost anything. She was a very odd contradiction. She didn't like the fame, she didn't like being well-known. She was very shy, very retiring, and yet, at the same time, incredibly adventurous. She travelled all over the world, learned to surf in Hawaii. There's a beautiful photo of her stood next to a surfboard. Surfing? Surfing. In Hawaii? Where? <laughs> in the 1920s? Yeah, I think she was one of the first British women to ever learn how to surf. My goodness. <laughs> That's an accolade, isn't it? So, here we are, if you'd like to come with me. This is the library. What a delightful room. Broadly speaking, it's a square room with a pretty plaster cornice going round and a rose in the ceiling. But around us are um, beautifully made bookcases, um, classical columns, pilasters, white-painted, and an array of books that go all the way around the room. I mean, there are book after book after book. Greek mythology, crime novels... Local history, such an eclectic mix. The whole family just read anything and everything they could get their hands on, really. Catherine, we've got a two, three, four shelves of Agatha Christie's novels. My goodness, to see them all together. It was an enormous amount of writing she did. I'm intrigued to know whether she liked the characters that she'd made because she spent a lot of her life with them. Most of them she did, I think, towards the end... She'd gone off Poirot slightly. He was the most popular. He was the one everybody knew. Everybody wrote about saying, we want more Poirot, we want more Poirot. I think it certainly got to the point where she'd had enough of did that she, character at that point. Did she try and kill Poirot off? She did, <laughs> yes, to the point where he even had an obituary in the New York Times. <laughs> it was a lovely day. Isn't it? What a lovely day. And we're on this sort of rather elevated walk, going through a sort of a, almost an arboretum, very pretty trees, great variety of exotic species, looking down over the estuary as the tide gently goes out. I mean, was this all part of Agatha Christie's garden? Yes, it was. What is stunning about this setting is there's sort of an inherent mystery about it, isn't there? That it's a, a landscape which you could be ambushed in 
Oh gosh, look. What a beautiful spot. What is, is this? Uh, so this is the boat This house. is the boathouse. This is the boathouse. It's enormous. This is. It's Two enormous. floors as well. With a great big solid door. I hope they're not going to find a body. It's a very pretty room. One, two, three, four arched windows looking out over the estuary. I suppose we're about 20 feet above water level here. And a door opening out onto the veranda, balcony. They just spend a lot of time down here just sitting surprised. and watching the world go by. This is the high life. How absolutely lovely. There are yachts bobbing around at anchor. The tide is gently going out on this sunny winter day. I expect the weather here can turn on a sixpence and from a sunny day like this, a sea breeze and a mist can come in and it could really become quite sinister, almost. Particularly down here at the boathouse, as you've seen, it's about a 10, 15 minute walk from the main house. There's no electricity, nothing like that. So you are, if you're down here and the weather turns, it can be very cut off. Definitely atmospheric. And it was out of this landscape and place that a lot of the stories were spun. Yes, the boathouse is probably best known to fans of Agatha as the place where the body of Marlene Tucker was found in Dead Man's Folly. Agatha very much wrote about what she knew. And of course, this stunning setting right on the bank of the river, but it's also very isolated, lots of ways in and out. And I think that just sparked something in her, the perfect place to hide a body, really. So, and yes, that, that became definitely well known. We have a lot of people who want to come and see the boathouse, see where it all took place. Catherine, just give me an outline of the story of Dead Man's Folly. So Poirot gets invited by Ariadne Oliver to come down and help with the Garden Fate. She's in charge of a fake murder mystery trail and she gets a girl guide, Marlene Tucker, to play the body, so she's hidden down in the boathouse. She took a different path from the one by which Poirot had come. This one seemed to head in the opposite direction. We passed by the boathouse this way, Mrs Oliver explained. As she spoke, the boathouse came into view. It jutted out onto the river and was a picturesque, thatched affair. That's where the body's going to be, said Mrs Oliver. The body for the murder hunt, I mean. Partway through, they find out that it's no longer fake. And so he gets involved in unravelling the mystery and trying to figure out who done it. Walking around where a character has walked, it's a surreal experience to some extent. For Agatha Christie fans, Greenway is alive with stories, characters and locations. Earlier, I caught up with the writer and literary critic, Dr John Curran, who remembers visiting Greenway for the first time and being bowled over as he stepped foot into the sights and scenes that he had loved for so many years in her books. I'm a writer and I've written two volumes of literary criticism analysing the notebooks of Agatha Christie and how she did what she did. 
I first came across Agatha Christie's books when I was at school in short trousers and her books fascinated me. I met Agatha Christie's grandson, Matthew Pritchard. So Matthew invited me down for a weekend and it was there that I came across what are now known in capital letters as Agatha Christie's Notebooks. So I spent 24 hours that weekend going through every page of every notebook a few times and I stayed up until two o'clock in the morning. So my association with Greenway is very much via the notebooks of Agatha Christie. The phrase child in a sweet shop springs to mind. To this day, visitors visiting the house can see, for instance, where Hercule Poirot had tea in Dead Man's Folly. He has afternoon tea in the drawing room and then he steps through the French window onto the lawn, which was set up as a garden fate. So you can, you can see that. You can go upstairs and see the room that Poirot slept in, because it's in the book it's described as a room looking out over the river, which this bedroom does. It was actually Agatha Christie's bedroom. And, and the bathroom is across the corridor, and the bathroom is still across the corridor. So for fans, it's wonderful to be able to do that and to imagine that you walked along the same path as Hercule Poirot. What a stunning day, fascinating day. As the sun goes down and the low light hits this pristine white stucco house on the edge of this beautiful estuary. I'm not surprised that Agatha thought of this as being a, a heaven, heaven on earth. It's a sensational spot. What a fascinating woman, and clearly the people I've met here love her. I mean, look, 1920s, the first surfer trained in Hawaii, fearless, are intrigued by her, and I think certainly the experience of visiting the house and garden, you get a great sense of her here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. And thanks to Roselle Anguin for reading excerpts from Dead Man's Folly that you heard throughout the podcast. For more information about Greenway, you can visit their website at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Greenway. Greenway is actually the final location in Series 2 of the National Trust podcast. But we've got two mini-stories on their way. In the first mini-episode, available next week, we'll learn about the curious military history of Greenway. To make sure you never miss another episode, subscribe on iTunes or your chosen podcast app. And please do let us know what you thought of this episode or share your suggestions for future episodes on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also email us at podcasts at nationaltrust.org.uk. Until the next time, from me, James Grasby, goodbye. <laughs>